everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Master Pod. This is a short podcast series which gives master students a chance to talk about their research. My name is Laura, and today we're talking to Benjamin Jungblut. In this episode, we will be heading to Nepal and learning more about changing dynamics of rural development. Here is Benjamin to tell you more about it. Hey, everyone. My master thesis started off because I was working or did work several times within international development aid. And I was always interested about the, the in implementation and the effects of international development aid. So most of this development aid happens within a rural context. So out in the countryside, not in like urban, highly infrastructural areas. And a lot of it relies around extension or like the, the transportation of information to people in those rural areas, because mostly education and information generation happens in the urban areas. So within this, one very important aspect are so-called social movements. And increasingly, international development debate has been paying attention to how social movements interact with development aid or how they can be a very important agent of development aid. And one of these social movements is the Rural Development Tokyo Association, which is a association and NGO that is active in Dolaka district, northeast of Kathmandu in Nepal. And so my thesis sent out to understand their history, how they evolved, how they were funded and founded, and how things changed over the last 40 years of their history. Sounds very interesting. Um, before we dive into your research more, I would just like to give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. Um, so answer these questions, max three words would be great. Are you ready? Yes. Where do you call home? That is Bus in Switzerland, close to Basel. What is your educational background? International agriculture. It's a hybrid between development studies and agriculture. What is your primary focus in sustainable development? Um, well, it's agriculture, so it's exactly between economic and environmental. A good mixture of sustainable development. Mm -hmm. uh, word that you use the most in your thesis, and maybe you even have an estimate of the number. Yeah, this is a question that I actually really, really looked forward to because it's something that I found interesting. <laughs> so I actually checked the numbers and it's development with 373. And then it's the wow. name of my organization that I'm looking at, the Rural Development Tokyo Association with 272. That's a lot of words. Yeah, development was definitely a very, very frequent word. Uh, what is your best way to deal with a thesis breakdown? I would say gain, gain like distance, but not completely shutting off. So like doing something that's engaging, but makes you focus on something else. Sounds like a good tip. What is the longest streak you have been in your comfy clothes? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm not even sure. It's probably somewhere around like five, six days. Because I know that when I came back from Nepal, I didn't leave my house for two oh, weeks wow. because of like the, the, the self-quarantine. So I think like during those two weeks, I, <laughs> I, I didn't wear much else than like basically sweaters. Uh, what is your favorite Swedish word? Lagom. Lagom. Do you, what can you tell our non-Swedish listener what that means? All right. So lagom is a a pretty interesting concept. It's a bit hard to translate into other languages, but it means basically just enough or not too much. So you should you should never want too much of something or be too over the top. So what is your piece of advice for future master thesis writers? Um, I would say to not overdo it. 
it is more important to understand the frame you have and the, the scope of the work that you have than actually putting in as much work as you can do. Last but not least, can you give us your sustainability tip? Grow your own food. Grow your own food. Are you growing your own food? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. That's a great tip. All right. So let's get into your research. Um, one thing that interests me a lot, can you tell us where the name Tuki comes from? All right. Yeah, that's actually a pretty cool story. So Tuki is a Nepalese word for a kerosene lamp. So it's it's especially something they use quite a lot in like the rural rural areas to illuminate small rooms. And the, the people that came up with the idea of Tuki, it was um, a couple Nepalese in collaboration with um, a, a team from, from SDC, the Swiss uh, Agency for Development and Corporation. So because they were running a project in, uh, in Nepal at the time, and they wanted to, they had issues with bringing the development out to the villages because Nepal seems, or especially at the time, had massive issues with self-agency or like just self-reliance. Because a big part of Nepalese mentality of them being Hindus is that a lot of your struggle comes from the gods or like from something that you did wrong in a previous life. So there's there's a lot of surrender to these circumstances. So the people bringing development to them had to figure out a way to engage them or, or make them be part of the development and make them feel like they are changing something. And the Tuki were, were those were lead farmers that they educated in every village, and they were the ones to bring the light of development out into the villages. So basically, the the people that got educated were the lamps, and the development project would be giving them the fuel to bring the light of development into the villages. And that's a, a image that stayed very strong with the organization until today. Just a quick recap now. You gave us a little a short summary in the beginning, but maybe go back and say precisely what is the problem you're solving and how? All right. So it, everything's kind of like my data collection is within the broad field of ethnography. So I was uh, mainly doing informal interviews, analyzing original documents from the organization. And then I was supposed to do participatory observation. Unfortunately, this wasn't possible because I had to leave the country early. But we then complemented the, the the data that I already had collected with a framework that originated out of organizational theory and social movement studies, which is called strategic action fields. So it originates on field theory, which is something that was developed around the 80s, beginning of the 90s, that kind of similar to, to the, the systems approach or like uh, systems thinking looks at, at things in like a context and is aware that everything's connected to its environment and influenced by it. And there's, it specifically focuses on the interactions within those fields and strategic action fields is more like, um, it's adapted from that to specifically look at how different organizations come to be contest power and influence within their specific action fields or how this action is, is formulated and how it's how it's generated. So what I was looking at is how the, organ, the, the Rural Development Tokyo Association was impacted by international development aid and local politics specifically. So how these two kind of fields influenced their perspective, how they acted, how they interacted. 
and to kind of show how this evolved over the history. Because even though we have some theory and there's there's some research being done on social movements, there's actually very, very little research that looks at historic development of social movements and tries to like apply these newer frameworks that we have now onto their historical development to try to understand what might have led to them having the issues that they have now or maybe not having certain issues that would have been expected. Now, I'm very interested in your results. What what are they and what were your biggest lessons learned? All right. So there's there's a concept within strategic action fields that's called social skills, of which a big part is creating collective identities. And I think this is we're very, very key to to the ability of the organization to maintain its work and to, to continue because there it, it allows the organization to have like a, a collective stance towards things. And this was extremely important because there was very volatile political situations around it. First, while they were founded, there was it was a monarchy. So it was extremely difficult for them to organize formally. It was basically impossible. They were relying on, on just very independent work and claiming to be non-political and this continued like this claim to be non-political was the only thing that allowed them to work for like the next 20 years because after when in 1990 when nepal was democ the like became a democracy there was very strong competition between the, the two main parties and would the organization have been affiliated with either one of the two the other would have like would have made it impossible for them to continue their work in the respective villages And after that, in 1996, the, the Maoist insurgency started, where Nepal fell into a 10-year civil war. And also during this time, the, the, the Toki were only able to continue their work because they, they, were, they could convince people that what they were doing was development and not politics, which is leading to like another one of the, the biggest lessons, I would say, which is that there is this... During the time that they were funded, there was in, in the discourse of development, there was a big separation between politics and development, which was already at the time highly debated. And especially now in the last like 10, 20 years, more and more people have said that this separation is basically an illusion, even though we, we've done this for like a couple decades because of exactly politically very, very difficult situations in many countries that we were doing development work. Development is intrinsically political. So it's extremely difficult to, to separate these these things. And it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how they were able to hold this balance because what they were doing was fundamentally political, but somehow they were able to convince people that it was development and not politics. So I think like the third, the third, the third big topic is financial sustainability. Could be, we could call it financial sustainability because there, there is very... There's a big issue with, with the funding of the organization as it was as it originated within a development project. Obviously, all its activities were funded by by the organization that was running that project, which was SDC at the time. And after the phase out of development projects, there's always a like a last that the phase out is actually aimed at trying to achieve a situation that is stable and that functions without external input. So you have to figure out how these people would generate their income. 
Unfortunately, this wasn't possible for, for the Tuki. They were supposed to be handed off to the government and become a government agency, but this didn't work out. It's, there's, there's some reasons as to why this could have been. Like we had, um, people in the government didn't feel like they could handle the responsibility. Most likely there were not enough funds within the, the legal government to actually stem a, a extension service that's as complex as the Tukis. So they, they continued being supported by SDC because they, they wanted this approach to continue. They saw the potential in the organization. And this went on from, from 1990 when the project ended until 2004 when SDC was not possible. It was not able to, to support them anymore because usually it's very, very difficult to get allowances for fundings that stay this long. Like they actually funded this organization for nearly 30 years, which is extremely long in, in development terms. And ever since then, the the World Development Tokyo Association has been jumping between different funders and kind of like be it like now it's a lot of organizations from Norway, some from Nepal, and but this has pushed them into a situation where they have very, very little impact on the work they are actually doing. They've they've moved from being an association that focuses on local needs and provides these needs without input to basically an NGO that implements projects from from donors and has very, very little agency to implement their own their own projects. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role as a researcher coming from Switzerland to Nepal? Were there any challenges um, that you saw or as your role as, you know, a white man going to Nepal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, obviously. There's, there's, um, but I think this is something that is representative of the niche that I'm researching because development aid is mostly that. International development aid is to a large degree Western white people, even often male. I mean, this is changing a bit now, but it used to be very, very predominantly male. They go into these places and basically tell people what they should do or how they should develop their place and how they should do these things. So this is definitely a a challenge or a problematic that's very, very inherent to, to the development work. And I think it does definitely create a bias. And I mean, it, it does have the issue of me not speaking their language, even though I was able to do like some, some basics, hello, and how are you and these kind of things. Obviously, my Nepali, my Nepali wasn't on the level to, to actually do the interviews in Nepali myself. So this also makes me as a researcher reliant on my on my environment on my translators on on my facilitators and it requires a lot of trust because basically you have to blindly trust the people around you to tell you the truth or to be genuine in their translations or to yeah to actually do these things which i personally didn't find to be a big problem in, in nepal because people are extremely helpful and very kind and very forthcoming and it really feels like you're like they're they're happy to see you. They're very welcome. I'm, I'm, I mean, I always heard this from from a lot of people that traveled there before, but I was surprised myself like how how friendly people were and how helpful. And even the people from the organization, they were like they were very willing to share their information and they were very open about the the experiences. So I was positively surprised. Let's say. That really makes me want to travel now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I can, I can only recommend it once you, once you get the chance. Nepal is an absolutely beautiful country with such friendly people. What kind of a future do you see for the Tuki now? Yeah, that's a, 
that's exactly pretty much the last question of my thesis. It's uh, it's very tricky. There's I've identified like the, the three major challenges they do have is, as I already talked about, funding. The second one would be ideology, because since they've started being funded by different people, like the whole ideology split up. In the beginning, I was also talking about like this collective identity, this having a very strong collective identity where everyone agrees upon is extremely important for the social for a social movement because it generates um, momentum. The more people think in the same direction, the further you're going to go in that direction. And right now it's there's. There's a lot of contestation within the organization that started in the last 10 years because there's more and more people that are overwhelmed with the, the great variety of things that they are supposed to do because the the Tuki work for free. The Tuki is a, a so supposedly a nonprofit organization. I'm not entirely sure how much all of the members are aware of this because I only read it once in one official document and never heard it again. But the Tuki don't receive money for their help, for their extension services or for yeah, when they when they're actually advising their peers. So with all with an ever growing expertise, because the Tuki started doing different, different projects. So now they're also doing in the beginning, it was only agriculture and like very basic education. Now it's reconstruction, child rights, women rights. Uh, it's like it, it completely blew out and they're, they're basically doing everything now. So a lot of individuals feel incapable of doing all of this and actually just stop doing their work. So redefining the Tuki or like one one of the things that I proposed in my thesis would have been to, to split it up into different sectors that focus on the specific expertise and can exchange this expertise or to split the, the organization into an association and an NGO. Because currently it does have, it's both, it's an NGO and an association. And I think it's extremely difficult to balance the requirements between these two because an NGO has its requirements towards its donors, but an, an association has a responsibility towards its members. So right now, the, the organization is kind of torn between satisfying its members and satisfying its donors. And then the third, the third kind of main issue for its future is that all of the original Tuki, they're now around 60, 70 or yeah, right? like they're very old. They're, they're engineers. They, they stop their work. Like even the, some of the management just retired like a couple of years ago. And it's extremely difficult for them to find new people doing with these jobs and it does of course also it has a relationship to like the, the the identity or the ideology that i was talking about before but they they need to find out a way to engage young people because the way they also they communicate and the topics they're talking about i think are still very much 30 40 years ago so it's extremely difficult for for the young people of dolaka now to identify with the organization and to feel like they're doing something that's in their interest or that will that will give them a perspective of what to do in, in Dolaka. So engaging in, in, in new media, be that video or just, just forums, internet, social, yeah. Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Instagram, Facebook, like it's as bad as it sounds, but like they have such a good story to tell. They just need to find the venues to tell it because they're so old school that they, they don't yeah. even have a webpage. They have nothing like they have an, a brochure that they printed eight years ago. So they're, they're very, very traditional in how they do things. And as much as this is admirable, this might be a very, very big challenge for them to move into the future. Oh, that is very true. Um, thank you so much for telling us more about your thesis. The next question is more broad. 
what mm-hmm. do you see for the future of sustainable development? Oh yeah, this is a this is a very interesting one. And the the instinctive answer that came up when I read this was a different name, which is a bit ironic, but I'm I'm actually really convinced that the, the concepts that we are working for within sustainable development have been watered down to a point where I think a lot of them need new names. I mean, some of them we've we've heard during our studies. I mean, the concepts of degrowth and post-growth for me personally are like extremely interesting. They just also have some issues with what we connote with the word degrowth and post-growth. So I think like making them more appealing, these kind of low low input systems or like proper yeah, or proper monetization of ecosystem services and things like this are are very at the like are at the core of the future of sustainable development but i think it's it it will need some some change in in the wording or at least what we understand behind it because it's it's a lost a lot of its yeah it's lost a lot of its meaning because it's so broad okay last question your favorite memory of our program or the most valuable lesson you learned you can also answer actually, both if I you want both. To. yeah i just want to say i actually Go have both it. like i would say my favorite memory is the it was our was our trip to ore oh. where i was incredibly surprised how many people actually joined like i would have never imagined that out of a, a course of 70 people 45 nearly 50 of them go on a skiing trip together that's like that's true. i have to say i was genuinely impressed by by our class atmosphere and all of that and like that that's something like this even works out that was that was definitely a very very good memory and i would say my the most relevant skill or something that i always come back to when i talk to people about the program is my ability to translate visions or issues into the perspective or the lingo of other specializations and backgrounds well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I learned a lot. I hope uh, Thanks for the time. everyone who listens to this also learns a lot. And uh, I'll hear it you soon. It was a pleasure. Bye. Absolutely. See you. This podcast was produced by Olivier Rostang, Rachel Gradin, and Laura Messner. Today's interview partner was Benjamin Jungblut, and your host was Laura Messner. We thank Jakob Rosin for providing us with the funky beats. 